You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Chasers of light to the purveyors of pictures to all of you listening from around the world. This is the F 11 photography podcast. I am your host, Kevin deal along with your other host, a Mr. Brandon Gorey. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Best Photography Podcast in Central Texas, if not the world. We're, we're glad to be here. I might also note that I haven't had my coffee today, and it's killing me. I think we have a ways to go before we're the best in the world, but we'll get there. Maybe one day. Mm-hmm. We got some cool guests. Mm-hmm. We, we, I don't know, man. There's some really good podcasts out there. I'm just saying. So I don't listen to podcasts, so that's probably why I've got such a ludicrous opinion. Well, that's if your sample size is one, we're both the best and worst photography podcasts in the world. Yeah, it's what did Jimi Hendrix say when he was interviewed by, I think it was Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson goes... How does it feel being the best guitar player in the world? And Hendrix said, uh, he, well, first of all, he laughed. And second of all, he said, I'm the best guitar player in this chair. The better one was when, uh, and it wasn't Johnny Carson, but it was somebody else who asked Eric Clapton, uh, what is it like to be the best guitar player in the world? And he said, I don't know. You'll have to ask Prince. Uh, yeah, Prince does not get the recognition he deserves. Oh, dude, Prince, Prince, like... You know, some people are just such geniuses that they, they do something at like a world class level, but they're on such a higher level that they don't even like, yeah, I, I know I'm like really good at guitar. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. You, your version of really good at guitar is better than everybody else's. You can melt people's faces off. Yeah. Prince didn't get the fame he deserved because he had trouble with his agents and with uh, the, the different the different deals he made. Yes, yes, yes. But... Uh, we're going to talk about light in today's episode with our guest, but before we do, I have an announcement I have to make, which is I am now on Team Pro Photo. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, completely by accident. So, a oh, mutual- please. No, uh, trust me, it was. Uh, a mutual friend of ours, Noe, uh, asked to uh, hang out with me on one of my shoots, and we're just you know, chatting and we're talking about like our light setups and all that. And he's like, what's, what kind of lights do you use? And I go, oh, I use Godox. I really like them. I may move over to pro photo one day. And you know, it's like one of many subjects we talked about and I didn't even think anything of it, whatever. And so like 48 hours later, my phone vibrates and Noe's like, Hey man, I'm at this dude's house right now buying some stuff on Craigslist and he's got a pro photo B1 for sale. So to set it up, it's not the pro photo B1X, which is the new one. But when it originally came out about six, seven years ago, it was a $2,200 light. And it wasn't just a Pro Photo B1, it was also three batteries. Now it comes with one battery, so we won't count that because that's included in the original $2,200 price. But it also had two more batteries. The batteries go for $380 a piece. Mm-hmm. So he had a Pro Photo B1 with a battery and two other batteries. Now, if you check that out on the used market, the batteries go for about 280, so you take about 100 bucks off. So that's 560 for two batteries. 
And then the uh, the B1 on the used market goes between about $800 and $1,000. So, you know, up to up to $1,500 is what you'd have to spend for that on the used market. No, he's like, bro, this guy wants to part with this stuff for $475. Oh, yeah. I was like, I'm on Team Pro Photo now. Yeah. <laughs> I got my car so fast. And thank you, Facebook Marketplace. And, you know, before you wonder, no, they weren't stolen. The guy actually has a ton of Pro Photo lights. He had other Pro Photo lights. He's just like, I don't use this one anymore. So... I was like, all right. So I went ahead and got the pro photo light. And then I uh, was like, well, I don't want to, I'm never going to get another one at this price. So they make the D one, which is the one that plugs into the wall. And I found one of those uh, used for about $400 as well. So for $800, I got into a two light pro photo, set, pro photo setup. And if you look at my work, my studio work, I rarely use more than two lights. If I do use a third kicker light, I may eventually down the road buy like a B10X or B10X uh, Pro, but I'm probably not going to do that for quite some time. And then uh, one of our, uh, one of F11 Pod's own, Vanessa Joy, who is sponsored by Profoto, had some extra, you know, goodies. She's just like, oh, I don't use these because I don't use the old system anymore. You want all these gels and these these grids. And do you see what the price of Profoto accessories are? You always say yes when someone offers you anything free Profoto. So thank you, Vanessa Joy. I love you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> a, yeah, so but that really got me into the pro photo. Uh, you are such a gearhead. It's I am insane. such a gearhead. But I, but I, but I'm I'm not just on Team Pro Photo. I'm not actually leaving Team Godox. Their lights are awesome. Mm. So uh, I, I just use them for different purposes now. But to test out how pro pro photo was, less than 14 hours after I acquired this. Do as I say, not as I do. I immediately went out and used it on a professional job without testing it, and it worked flawlessly. You're like, you know, you're like, hey, I should probably test it out on something that's not important. Well, I had to shoot some shoes for a shoe line, and uh, I just took the pro photo stuff with me. It worked, worked just fine, but it's like it's fate because then this other guy on Facebook Marketplace was getting rid of uh, a bunch of stuff. He's like, I'll just get it, get rid of it all for $80. So there was like a a, a, a glow, a, a $300 glow softbox that he just got rid of. And then a pro photo umbrella, which is also about 150 bucks. And then a bunch of uh, backdrops and like purple or not purple, like pink, like fuzzy carpet type backdrops and just textures and stuff. And he was like, I just want to get rid of all this stuff. I'll get rid of it for 80 bucks. And I'm like, done. And so anyway, that's pretty awesome. But let's talk about today's sponsor. We're going to talk about Dehancer. Uh, is the is the price of film kicking you in the nuts? It is kicking several of us in the nuts. And film is super expensive. So if you want to uh, emulate film and do a good job of it, not like that that poor man's version of emulating film where they just kind of get the colors close, but I'm talking about things like bloom, halation, uh, adjusting your grain structure to look super organic. They even have a contrast slider, shadow highlight and contrast slider specifically built to emulate film. So it's not going to be your regular contrast. They have highlight and shadow sliders that actually emulate the pushing and pulling of film. It's insane. Yes, and also not just that, but do keep in mind that Dehancer also emulates prints. It's not just about the negative and scanning the negative and getting that look going. It's also about emulating a print because that is the other art form of photography like film photography analog photography is creating the print the print is what you sell at the art gallery right so uh, being able to make your digital files look like prints is pretty awesome so uh, it's not just a bunch of hype go check out the Hanser. use the code gory 10 or check out the link in the description of this podcast and you can get uh, your discount off the Hanser today 
So joining us on the F11 hotline today is Los Angeles-based photographer Katrina Brown. Katrina is a commercial photographer and educator with 29 years of experience. She represents brands such as Light Painting Brushes, Gura Gear, and Google Pixel. She's a member of Google Team Pixel. And while she shoots most genres of photography for commercial licensing, shooting at night is her true passion. Uh, Points of light, time-lapse cinemagraphs, uh, Milky Way chasing and painting with light are all things that she loves to teach and experiment with. And that's precisely what we're going to be focusing on on today's episode. So everyone give a warm welcome to Katrina Brown. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show today. Uh, Thank you for coming on. And uh, we open up every single interview the exact same way, which is tell us about your photography journey. How did you get started in photography? And more specifically, how did you get started in painting with light and all this really awesome uh, marriage of kind of astrophotography and portraiture that you do? How did you get into all that? And how did you get into photography in general? Well, uh, photography in the beginning, I'd have to say, probably started when I was about five. And it wasn't until um, my mom had passed away that I found a bunch of Polaroids where I was um, taking my dog and dressing her up or posing my Barbies. And, excuse me. And once I discovered those, then I started remembering, oh, yeah, I used to get in so much trouble for taking the film. And even when, you know, back in those days, you'd get a paddle for it. It didn't matter. I would still take the film and I would still photograph these things. So I think it's always kind of been a part of me. But um, during high school, you know, I was always the photographer. I was always the one taking shots of, you know, everybody in band and color guard and theater and all those things. But it, it got really serious for me when I had my first child. And I went to go uh, have some portraits done and the cost, I said, you know, the Jerry Rigger in me said, wait a minute, the cost of this is the same as a cost of set of lights. Let me figure this out. And it just took off from there. And someone saw my work at a local camera shop and told me I should license those images. This is back in the days of film. And of course I did. And then I just kind of, it just took over my life. So then, um, still working with film, then I fell in love with uh, night sky photography and the reciprocity of doing time-lapse shots with film and and, uh, star trails and things like that. And of course, digital came around, gave us a lot more flexibility. And I started teaching workshops in about 2009, doing star trails, just nighttime photography and light painting, uh, you know, trees and tents and things like that. So that's kind of how that all started. I kind of always had, a, I think maybe I was born with a camera in my hand. I'm not quite sure. Right on. Well, I have, I have friends who uh, get into astrophotography and after a while, uh, some of them get bored and they insert themselves into the image. So they'll like do a shot of them, like standing out on a ledge and then they have like a headlamp on and they're looking up and you see the Milky Way and that's all fine and good. And a lot of them do that, but you really take this to a much elevated level uh and you mentioned your daughter isn't she also the subject of most of your work yes so not only is it convenient to have a model you produced yourself because you know she's not going to flake and be on time but more more importantly um i've had a lot of loss in my life and it's really important for me she doesn't know it now but these images that i have mostly of her because we do workshops together um, they may be a pain for her now to have to go out to the desert with her mom but I'm, I'm more interested in what's going to be left behind 
and the images and the meaning of the images she's going to realize one day, even though today's not that day. So that's really important to me. And, and I love that we work together. And of course, she makes money. I don't make her work for free. Um, but we have students and we have uh, relationships with clients. And it, it's just a wonderful circle of people. And we not only that, we get to produce beautiful artwork together. So um, to me, that's really fulfilling. Sounds like it. Now, the marriage of astrophotography and environmental portraiture technically speaking, is not an easy thing to achieve because to shoot astrophotography, you need time and you need light. But to properly illuminate somebody in the dark, you need a lot of light usually. Or, you know, getting the balance of the two has got to be one of the most difficult parts of your job. Would you agree? Yes. And once you crack that code, it's magic. And that's really, you know, as much as I am in love with the art itself, I am mostly in love with making my camera do what I want it to do. Figuring out those codes, making things work, making the light balance. And that's really where my passion is at. And once you crack that, because I've worked in theater and I marching band arts and things like that. So I've got a lot of visual background for that and obviously lighting and things like that for theater. So kind of manipulating this to create what I want, which a lot of people think is completely Photoshopped from the get go um, is tr a true passion of mine to prove that it can be done without having to composite and Photoshop completely. Now that all being said, I can't help but wonder what that process looks like. And if you'd be able to share with us any, you know, any bit of that process without infringing upon your own, uh, your own classes and workshops. Oh no, I'm happy to share. So the, the most important thing is what I don't do. And what I don't do is move my tripod. So let's say I want North star trails behind my daughter light painted on a rock. So I'm going to do all my light paintings at blue hour. And, and I'm going to shoot, you know, probably 20, 30, however many till I get what I like. And so that I have various options. And then I'm going to wait till the stars come out. And then I'm going to change my settings as far as, you know, I, exposure and that sort of thing. And I'm going to let my camera run for about four hours or possibly all night long, depending on what, what I have in mind. So once I'm done with that, that I could create a time lapse from the star trail images. And I simply blend in the... Uh, light painted image prior on top of that. So some would say that's compositing, but in the night sky community, everybody does that. They blend shots. You, you can't leave your camera open for four hours for a star trail in digital because it would be a mess. You could with film. You can't do it with digital. It would be a digital mess. So you're shooting very short frames and blending them all together anyway. It's the exact same process, except you're blending in the light painted portion of it. Now, if I shot her someplace else and put her on top of it, that would be a composite. And that's okay, too. But I, because I'm teaching students and I want people to actually be able to do it without having to learn a whole new set of Photoshop skills, I teach it in a way that it's blending. So the number one thing is to shoot everything on the same tripod at the same time, just with varying settings. You, but, but it is possible to do both, like the Milky Way with light painting without blending. It is possible to do that. 
So you see, that's incredible. You know, it, that makes me, you know, I, down the line, I was definitely going to ask you what your camera equipment was, but now I, I think I'm more interested in knowing what's your tripod process. I mean, how many cinder blocks do you, do you have and, and sandbags at, you know, just stacked at the feet of that cinder or that tripod to make sure it's just not going anywhere. Yeah, well, you, you use a fairly sturdy tripod, but I, I am an older female, so carrying heavy equipment is not really feasible for me, especially when I've got three cameras in my backpack. So my tripods aren't all that heavy, aren't all that crazy. As long as it's low and, and positioned correctly, you should be just fine. And that tripod doesn't move for about, you know, sometimes up to six hours, maybe correct, longer. Correct. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's amazing. So I see, I see that like there are variations of your work, kind of different levels of it. This is just like how I'm interpreting it. So like you might have a, what I, I don't want to use the word basic because I don't consider any of your work basic, but like you have a, an image where you have a static environmental portrait going on with maybe some light painting. Like uh, for instance, I'm just going to give you some examples. You did a shoot in Los Angeles, I'm assuming with your daughter and it was uh, posted in May th on May 31st of this year, kind of a, a, a Oak tree uh, green setting kind of green light. Uh, that, yeah. that to me is like your most basic version of your light painting. It's like, Oh yeah, it's an environmental portrait with light painting, but then you kind of step it up to different notches. So like, that's one version of what you do, but then you can do one where you have the Milky Way. Then you also do one where you have star trails and then you do one where you actually have movement going on. So how do you build to like, cause I, I think of, you know, the most, uh, I guess, stimulating to look at visually stimulating is the stuff with the motion. Do you, how do you build all these up? Meaning as far as the like, figuring out the lighting? Well, so for instance, uh, I'm assuming you use some sort of a variation of the rule of 500, which for people who aren't listening is you tend to take your, you, you take 500 and you divide your focal length, right? And that's like the longest you can keep your shutter open, right? Correct. Yeah. So I'm assuming you do stuff like that, but I also noticed that in a lot of your shots, because I do want to talk gear a little bit, you use a 2.8 aperture lens, but a lot of people who are uh, self-proclaimed astrophotographers tend to use 1.4 lenses. Uh, two stops brighter. So do you pull, I mean, you have to keep everything stable. You can't, you can't take a camera off your tripod once you get going. So what, what's your method for shooting 2.8 shots of gathering the Milky Way? So the only way to compensate for that is your ISO. Right. And the reason I don't, well, I don't have my 1.2 lenses. Most, let, let me back up. Most of the people who come on my workshops don't have a 1.2 lens. In fact, most of them have 2.8 and then there's a sprinkling of, you know, 4.5 and whatnot. So I generally stick to that because I'm giving them exposures and I'm testing and I'm giving them settings as well. And they, they could compensate, you know, just by increasing their ISO. But I like to shoot exactly how they're shooting so that I can more accurately give them because newer people don't exactly know what they're looking at on the back of their camera. Because once you process a Milky Way, it looks very different than what you're seeing on the back of your camera. So I primarily stick to that. I'm not afraid of higher ISO. In fact, uh, shooting 1.2 would actually be probably harder with my light painting because you have to bring the light in your tube so far down to compensate for the high ISO that you're 
shooting for the Milky Way, that it, I'm so comfortable at the 2.8, I know exactly what to set everything at, that it's just, it's really not a necessity. And there's ways of, of balancing noise and, and digital noise and things like that in your images. And noise doesn't scare me. It's, you know, I come from the film days of astrophotography. So um, I know a lot of people really freak out about digital noise. And to me, it's part of the flavor. It's kind of like shooting film, right? You know that. You can tell what film stock you use just by what it looks like um, after it's printed. So um, it's the same with, with digital photography. It doesn't bother me as much um, because I know what it was and I know what it is now. And I think the art kind of supersedes the noise issue. Yeah, on the subject of noise, I, I agree with you. I think people freak out a little bit too much about it. And I think one of the things that they don't understand is that when you purchase a higher megapixel camera, so for instance, I know you use an R5 just like I use an R5. When you get a, uh, a larger file, it zooms it in more. Like whether you're in Lightroom or Capture One, your raw editor will zoom in more on the file because it's a larger file and it can. And so you see the noise. And so people are like, oh, my R5 is noisy. I'm like, dude, your face on your monitor, like that's the size of the side of a building. And your like face is right up to the side of the building. Of course you're going to see noise. But yeah. when you're looking at the image, the way you're supposed to be looking at the image, standing back X amount of feet, you're not going to notice any of the noise. And if you post your stuff on Instagram, no one is ever going to comment on the noise. Uh, any camera that has come out in the last 10 years is perfectly fine for doing anything on a platform like Instagram. It's really only if you're making fine art prints that are super large where it's actually going to make any sort of a difference and you still have to get up close to see it. And so yes. I'm with you 100% on that. I think people, uh, I think it's more of an ignorance thing. Like people don't realize that they're, it's not, I mean, it's not necessarily producing more noise. It's just zoomed in more. That's your, your raw editor is zooming you in more. So you're going to see the noise easier. That's it. And so, Correct. and yeah. yes, to your point, you know, there are, there is software out there. Now I, I personally don't use denoising software. If I were doing what you do, I, I, I might use some, but uh, I don't use it at all. I shot a professional commercial job for a grocery store. Uh, and they're like, uh, pu pulling, um, uh, they're, they're packaging up, uh, iced coffee. Okay. Into, into like bottles. And it was like an assembly line and anyway, it was middle of the day or whatever. But like I was, I was, I was shooting inside the shadow part of the assembly line and my ISO on my R5 was at 12,800 or whatever. And I just delivered the shots to them without any denoising. And the, the, the large grocery store chain said, we love it. So, I mean, I don't know what everybody's standards are, but my standard of, of getting uh, money put in my bank account by a happy client is my standard. So, yes. and yes. they don't, they don't care. So I don't care, but I also understand what's going on in my raw editor. Uh, however, <laughs> I want you to talk about the basics because, uh, because a lot of people who, who listen to this pod, look at your work and have no idea what's going on. Like literally like, what is yeah. this? Why are there flames around this guy? This guy's holding a <laughs> lightsaber. What, what, why is there this perfect circle behind this astronaut? Explain to the viewer what they're looking at and how you do it, because it involves more than just a photographer and a model. You often need at least one other person, right? Who's helping with the light painting. No, I'm usually the one doing the light painting. But okay. at the same time, I'm triggering my, my wirelessly, I'm triggering my camera and I'm either doing bulb mode so that when I'm done, I close the shutter or it's a set in manual. But the, 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 what pe most people who don't know what they're looking at don't understand is each one is a long exposure photograph. So 
just like think of taking a white crayon on a black piece of construction paper, right? As long as it's touching, it's creating something, it's the same thing. So I'll open my shutter and you can't have any, no headlamps, no, no phones on, no nothing. That's why you have to go to a dark, really dark place, no street lights, no anything. And you'll open your shutter. And of course, the number one thing is the model to stand as still as possible. So the model will stand there and I will draw my circle behind the model and then I will close or do whatever else I need to maybe light his face or, you know, put a rim light on the helmet, whatever I need to do, and then close the exposure. So let's talk about the circle behind the astronaut with the Milky Way. That is all one exposure. And let me explain how I do that. So my model will stand there and it's a 20 second exposure. So how do we get him so crisp? So here's the trick. You don't do the light painting until the end of the exposure, but he has to still stand pretty still. Why? Because the light, if let's say he sways a little bit, just, you know, a millimeter. When I go in to do the light painting towards the end of that 20 second exposure, it overwrites anything because the light, it's like flash freezes, right? It overwrites whatever has happened and you get this beautifully illuminated figure with the Milky Way. And it's a trick. Um, you know, I have to run in wearing black. I have to paint and then I have to run out. And the helmet, actually for that shot, the, I put I built some lights inside the helmet. I couldn't have them on the whole time because the lumens blew out. So I'd have to run up behind him, do the circle, tap the, and I'd have a, 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 a switch hanging out of the back of the helmet, turn it off, turn it on, then turn it off, and then run out of the frame. So it, it's a difficult choreography of things that has to happen. And it took us a few shots to get that, you know, the helmet was blowing out. Okay. I need to turn it off and on quickly or, you know, faster, shorter, whatever I needed to do. And then the tube, the tube is just a tube by itself. I have a separate flashlight that I use in it that has 10 different lumen levels. So because the Milky Way, I think we were shooting at ISO 6,400, my lumen levels could only be about maybe 25 between 25 and 50. So it's all the, it, this difficult uh, knowing of numbers and, and lumens and balancing that all creates one image in one frame. And that's what that one is. Have you gotten to the point where you can just eyeball light and kind of have an idea of whether it's going to be too powerful, too yellow, too blue, uh, too dim, you know? Absolutely. And I can't explain it. Students will say, how do you, I'll set up a scene and I'll just, you know, know instantly, okay, this is going to work and this isn't going to work. And usually the first take, and I'm like, I even impressed myself. I'm like, yes, I'm the light queen. And they're like, how do you do it? I, I don't know. It's just, it's like a learned thing. You do it so much. It's like um, instant, you know, when you use your camera so much, it's just a, a choreography of your fingers. It's the same with light. If I've worked with a light before, like tea lights, I know instantly where I can, where I can put them, how many I need to do the job and it comes out perfect. Um, but if you give me a light I've never used before, that's not quite the same, but I've used so many different types of light sources that I can almost instantly set up a scene and not need much testing to get it just right. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Who's your favorite light provider? Uh, oh, gosh. You mean light source provider? I, I guess. Or whatever comes to mind. Uh, you, you work a lot with light. Yeah. Well, my favorite is a, a tool made by Light Painting Paradise, which unfortunately has been discontinued because they couldn't find a manufacturer and they're actually highly sought. But it's a light painting brush or sorry, 
light painting paradise flashlight that was built in Spain. And it had 10 different levels of lumens, which is unusual, on top of 10 different strobe. And it had a flash capability. It had all sorts of things. Um, I have two of them and I'm terrified to use them because I've lost them before. Um, but yeah, that has to be my favorite tool because I can do so many different things with it. And and uh, I'd imagine that, you know, uh, talking to you about your familiarity with light and how that's just become second nature to you, you the process and the timing of everything, like the learning curve, uh, how long did it take you to figure your rhythm out and and like how much have you cut down on the time of the process just from troubleshooting like what was the learning curve like well you know i i really don't know when i started out shooting i was shooting with a group of friends we they called themselves the illumination um the group of guys and my friend patty she brought me in and that was kind of my first exposure to it and i was like what the heck is this because i've been light painting landscapes but not people and tools and plastics so my head just exploded and I probably shot consistently probably every weekend uh, for a year, just doing different things, making different tools, um, experimenting with plastics, um, trying different flashlights. And, and really I had to write down what the lumens were because I needed to understand, you know, what I was working with. And every flashlight has the lumen range, you know, step one, two and three. And it probably took me about a year before I could really just know what to grab, what to set up and what to do before I was really proficient at it to where it didn't, I didn't lose all of blue hour trying to figure out my exposure. Oh, absolutely. And I'd imagine that, you know, with all that experimentation, you sort of get an idea of what you're interested in uh, shooting because there's, you know, a lot of people see light photography as, you know, kind of just this overarching genre and like, okay, you either do light photography or you don't, but um, within light photography itself, there are definitely subgenres. There are definitely different creative styles and aspects to it. And so you must have started, you know, you must have developed that sort of that intention and how you'd want to work with light photography it, uh, itself. Yes. And, and there's, there was, I wasn't the only one doing, um, as far as having a pretty model with circles and things like that. There's the maker of the tubes. His name is Eric Paré. And he makes light painting tubes. And he was a big inspiration. Him, I believe his partner, uh, they travel the world doing beautiful dance things and, and all these beautiful locations with the light. And it really inspired me. You know, I want to create that kind of thing with my daughter. And the friends that I was shooting with, they were doing more, you know, um, abstract stuff and, and not so much pretty. You know, they're doing just whatever came to mind and kind of setting up their filmmakers. So setting up little scenes and doing stuff, which is great and it was fun. But I decided to take, you know, I'm going to create some beautiful imagery and, and memories with my daughter. And then we just people, you know, begging me to go shoot and do whatever. So I shifted my workshops from night sky and light painting to including her with it. And that kind of put us on another challenge and another task of, you know, we can do this. And she's getting beautiful images and work out of it as well. And I'm making great memories with my daughter. So it was a win-win, I think, for everybody. Absolutely. So how much uh, I, I find that you tends to build characters in your stories, so obviously you have an astronaut character we've referenced. Uh, looks like you've done some uh, Jedi type stuff, or this looks more like Sith because it's a red lightsaber. Uh, yeah. Got got to get my terminology correct. Um, 
you looks like you have a really awesome motorcycle rider with flames behind him, which is freaking awesome. Uh, where do you come up with inspiration for your characters and your props and all that? Oh gosh, you know, um, it just a, a big inspiration. You know, obviously movies. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. If you can't tell, um, but I'm actually more Star Trek fan than Star Wars. Um, but don't tell my my man but anyway so i like to shoot i have a lot of star wars um uh, costuming and things like that and and i make my my guy you know kind of do those things or i run into somebody like the motorcycle guy at the biennale in uh, bombay beach who you know i kind of was hoping he'd have me do it and he did but uh, most of my inspiration it can be music lyrics uh, movies um a lot of it you know i worked in theater so Mary Poppins, and as cheesy as it sounds, but that's a huge inspiration for a lot of my shots with my daughter. And she won't understand that now. But if later in life, you know, she's a fan or she listens or she watches, she will kind of get it. And that's just kind of on the down low kind of thing. And um, I, everything inspires me. When I go to Target and I look at the wall displays, I'll see colors or I'll see an interaction and I'll just be staring. And those poor store uh, theft Prevention people must think I'm just crazy because I'll take pictures and I'll stare or, you know, I'll kind of look at product labels or things that will kind of inspire me. It comes everywhere. And if I don't write it down, I'll forget. So oh. I'm huge. I've got probably a whole notepad of ideas that I haven't done yet. Some that I forget what I was even writing down. Um, you know, it, it kind of comes from everywhere. Hi, this is Chris Woodman, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Now, I'm looking at some of your light painting. Sometimes I see the solid circle, like a very intentionally blown out halo. And yes. then other times I'll see, like, uh, there's one you did in, like, a, it looks like a tube, a sewer system type area where it looks like you have spokes, like kind of baby, kind of kind of tealish looking spokes. Is it just yes. you're using, is it just you're using a slower, you're using like a darker aperture, a slower uh uh, spin and then that's just like like how do you get that spoke effect so that's part of the flashlight that i told you i really loved um that's no longer available it has different strobe modes so the actual flashlight is turning off and on and there's 10 different speeds it goes faster or slower so you can make the spokes bigger you can make and you can also make them bigger or smaller by the speed of your hand on top of it so this is just typically the same speed. It's just the actual light source is strobing, which is you, what makes that effect. And then do you like strap a sparkler on the end of it? Yes, I use two hair ties and I just put the stick, you know, kind of stick it down in there, light it, and about two, two and a half second exposures for each one. And it's all done in bulb mode so that I know when to stop and start. And I'm usually instructing, if you see my videos, you hear me say two, one, open, and then close. And that's because I'm instructing the others who were shooting with me when to open and when to close, because sometimes I'll vary it. I'll go slower, I'll go faster, I'll do double, I'll make different shapes. So um, it has to be completely in bulb mode with full control of when you open and close the shutter. As awesome as that shot is, the part that really does it for me is the reflection that you got, but the, 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 the presence of mind to go, oh, we definitely want to put it in front of some water that just really ties that image together. That is awesome. Um, speaking of reflections, probably one of my favorite shots you've ever done is the one with the broken mirror. 
that one is sick. And that, that, that one, that one taps into something else I want you to talk about, which is creating motion, because it's really easy for me to explain what you're doing. Uh, even though I don't shoot the genre of photography that you, I, I, I understand a lot of what you're doing there, but for people who are like following along, and by the way, we are going to put links to all the, um, all the images we're talking about. I'm going to put Instagram links with timestamps in the description of this episode. So people can just like go in and check out what I'm talking about, what we're talking about. But with this one in particular, uh, and all your ones that have star trail motion and all that, what exactly are you doing and what are you using to achieve the final output? Like what program are you creating the motion with where certain things are standing still? Go ahead. Perfect. Sure. So here's the key to making this work. <clears throat> this is what I teach in my workshops. One set of images actually gives you three products. You have a point of light, which is a sharp star image. You have a time lapse finished flat image when you blend them all together. And you also have a time lapse cinemagraph where you make the image actually move. So how do we do this? Well, just like film, everything is a single frame, right? So we're gonna be shooting these maybe 20 seconds, maybe 15, depending on the lens and what you're doing. But you wanna shoot them so that everything is sharp. So each image, you're gonna have one second delay or just lock open your shutter with uh, an external cable release and it's just gonna go all night long. Click on, off on, off on consistently for at least four hours. I think anything under that, three might be okay, but you wanna do long because when you do short star trails, it looks very um, amateurish. So I prefer go for the gusto, right? Get as many hours as you can four hours or more, typically one battery lasts four hours, but if you want more, you just use a battery pack and get double that. So once you, you'll have, let's say you have 400 images at the end of the night. Well, this was a big struggle in the beginning because I saw a discovery channel, you know how they have those film in between like little shorts transitioning. And I saw the star trails, which I consider cumulative where they were moving across the sky, but one was being added as the other, kind of like what you're talking about in there. And it took me about a month in my brain. Like, how does that happen? So how it happens is I have to add a star trail, add one more image, then save the file, add another, save the file. Imagine doing that 400 times to create the buildup of this time-lapse image that's pretty much a time-lapse growing instead of just single stars moving across the sky. So once I figured that out and I thought, what, what's wrong with me? Why am I doing all this work? And, uh, but I did a few of them. And then there was a software that came out called star stacks and it does it for you. It'll save each image while it blends the image together. And I want to kiss that developer. Like you don't even know that saved me so much work. So Basically, you're creating from the same set of images, you're creating this additive. So it'll save all 400 images. It'll add a star trail, then save it, add a star trail and save it. So you'll have 400 images of this progressive star trail moving across the sky. And then I just use QuickTime to assemble the time lapse and I choose my frames per second. You can 24, 29.97, whatever you choose. I usually speed it up in post anyway, so I usually choose 24. And uh, it you'll watch it assembled just like a video. Create a cinemagraph of these stars adding across the sky. Now, if you don't use star stacks and you just use just the straight images you shot, it will just look like single stars traveling across the sky. But if you use star stacks to blend and save each image, then it, it's a star trail that grows just like you see 
um, in the video. Well, one thing I want to, one of the reasons why I specifically wanted you to talk about your process is because if I didn't know any better, I would just scroll through my Instagram feed and see your work and go, oh, cool. So you use computers and AI and all that shit. That's cool. <laughs> you know, like that's cool. And then just keep scrolling and people don't realize how much effort you have to put into your final output on these. Like, and just like, even, even like driving to the location, cause you live in the greater Los Angeles area where you cannot see the stars. So you have to drive what three hours you have to go, you go to like the Salton sea and Joshua tree and places like that to work. Correct. Yes. That's. And I think that's the number one thing when people say, what's the number one part of your process, finding the right location. Uh, you want to check the Bortle scale and that's just, determines the brightness. If you Google Bortle scale, B-O-R-T-L-E, and there's maps, you can see, is it dark enough to shoot? Can you see the Milky Way? Can you see stars? That's the number one process you need to start with. Oh yeah. The Bortle, the Bortle scale, like, so I, I, I do the amateur star trails here. Like I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't shoot uh, a lot. I used to be a landscape photographer and then I, I decided to do portraiture, uh, which by the way, when I think about taking a model out into the street and shooting them, I feel very inadequate compared to what you do and the efforts you put into your shots. I'm like, they're very pretty and it's a very good pose. And that, uh, that whole thing took me one, one of a second to achieve. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, uh, no, I love, I love the fact that you dedicate, um, you know, so much into your craft and, and it's, it's paying off. You're, you you got sponsorships, you're part of team pixel, which we'll get into in a bit, but I love, I love the fact that you, you go through that painstaking detail. And, and for people who are, who are not into astrophotography, uh, you know, just even, even if you don't want to get into it, learn about the Bortle scale, because if you want to like, just go see stars, like it's because what 90% of us live in cities and we, most of our lives don't get outside of a certain uh, distance from a city. And when we do, we're usually in a car and, the, you know, we're driving in between cities and we don't really just stop and get get out and look up. And, I mean, you can see some insane things. Like, I've actually been, like, I, I forget, is it the is it the number? I do I did forget if, if it's is it the higher number, the higher the number, the better it is, the lower the number, or worse it is, or is it, am I getting that backwards? The, the lower, yeah, it's, it's, it's just like aperture, right? The lower, so a number one is the best. Yeah, that's what and I thought. Nine is the worst. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we went to a Bortle One zone. I think it was like a oh, Black nice. Canyon of the Gunnison or whatever in Colorado, and uh-huh. the Milky Way was so bright that it cast a shadow. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, because the moon wasn't out. Because once the moon gets out, then you get light pollution from the sun reflecting off the moon. Yeah. And yeah. so, so like uh, we were we were doing October. And so in October, like right as soon as the sun goes down, like 45 minutes or so after the sun goes down, it gets black. But then the moon comes out like a couple hours later. So there's like this short window between blue hour and like uh, as soon as the moon comes out where you can actually. And and at that point in time, the Milky Way is more on the horizon than it is straight above you. I think you got it's like middle of the summer and you got to get up at two or three in the morning if you want to get the Milky Way directly above you. Am I right, astrophotographer? Yeah, it's different every month out of the year. There's actually months where you don't see it, but my favorite months are April and May. Those are the best. That's when you, that's when you plan all your workshops. Yes. And, and it's funny because, you know, you'll be in the Salton Sea and it's 115 at eight o'clock at night. And I'll never forget. I had a student say, why in the F are we doing here in 115 degree heat? 
this time of year. And I said, because the Milky Way says so. Like, There's no option. You know, this is the new moon. This is the Milky Way. If you want to shoot the Milky Way, this is where you got to be in the desert when it's hot. It just, it is what it is. It's that, you know, I can't control the Milky Way. And she said, oh yeah, I guess so, huh? <laughs> it's just funny how people just think you just go in the desert in the height of the heat because you want to. Well, it's the only time to shoot the Milky Way. So, huh? um, you know, you, you got to pay the price. How do you safeguard against that sort of thing? Like there has there has to be a disclaimer in your class to say like, hey, we're going to bring 10 gallons of water per person. <laughs> well, I have a funny story about that. Um, Joshua Tree, we had a, a woman who um, didn't want to have to relieve herself in a, you know, bushes or what, you know, there's no, tr there's no toilet. Yeah. So she solved the problem by not drinking a drop of water all day. To whence uh, she fell over backwards and hit her head on a rock. That's a yeah. That's a that's a bad game plan. Yeah. So we, that's part of our workshop prep now. And um, yeah. So luckily she had a partner with her who had, was you know they came together who could drive her to an emergency. Otherwise, I would have had to strand everybody out there. And um, you know it, it's just things that you just don't do, but you have to talk about because we forget that. Most people don't have experience being outdoors or, you know, they want to be, especially post COVID, everybody bought a camera and now everybody wants to get out and shoot, but they don't know their camera. So, um, and they don't know about being outdoors or, you know, all those things. So we have to actually, the prep class for my workshops are pretty extensive um, as far as learning your camera, learning how to be outdoors, what to do, what not to do, even down to what kind of protective clothing you have to wear. So yeah, it's, it's pretty extensive. You know, it's that makes me think of a time uh, I used to do soccer tournaments out in Temecula in the heat of the summer, and uh, I was prone to heat exhaustion. I'd halfway through the games, I'd just notice myself. I'd stop sweating, and I'd see bright white lights in the in, the, in my periphery, in the periphery of my eyes, and I get dizzy, and I have to get dragged off the field. And that would happen like summer after summer, and I never thought it was a weird thing. I I never told anyone. I'd just <laughs> I'd just be like, all right, I need to I need to take a time out. Like I need to get off the field. I'm not feeling too well. Yeah. Well, the, the great part is during the day, you, we're hiding, you know, if they're in hotel rooms or whatever, you know, you've got your air conditioning, go shopping, do whatever, drive out to wherever. So we're only really shooting in the late afternoon and into the night. So even though at the Salton Sea, when it's 115 degrees at eight o'clock at night, you don't have the direct sun on you. So even though it's hot and it's muggy and kind of disgusting, it's not as uncomfortable as it would be if we were shooting midday. So that is an advantage, but still, you know, it can be kind of catchy at times for somebody who's not too familiar with um, how to handle the heat. Absolutely. So as we mentioned earlier, you shoot on a Canon R5 with a very stable tripod, but you're using uh, adapted EF lenses, correct? For the yes, most part? I, I have not purchased. So my family bought me the R5. I have all Mark IVs. And it, the reason I didn't want to get an R5 is I didn't want to switch out all my lenses because I have four bodies that I shoot. You know, usually when I'm doing star trails, I'm, I have one north, I have one east, I have one, you know, for the Milky Way all at one time because I want to make use of my time out there. And I don't want to have to replace everything. So they bought me this with an adapter. And I was really impressed how well the lenses I tested. They didn't look any different than other than the weight was the only benefit. So I have not switched over. 
Well, the improved autofocus on it actually makes the older lenses perform better. And that's the, that's kind of, I mean, not that you do a ton of, you're not shooting like, well, you, I mean, for your commercial work you do, you shoot like models and stuff like that. So you can probably notice like the eye detect and stuff like that makes your life a little easier, especially if you shoot something at a shallow depth of field, you know, everyone's like, well, you can't shoot at a shallow depth of field with an 85 millimeter because, you know, one of the eyes will be out of focus. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, if they're, if they're turned a certain way, that's true. However, a lot of times it's because your autofocus doesn't actually hit the eye. It might hit the nose and that might be the reason why one of the eyes is out of focus as well. So uh, having an autofocus that actually locks onto what you're trying to get it to lock onto, it's definitely a game changer. And I've noticed that uh, some of those older lenses actually perform better on the newer autofocusing system, which it should be because it's an, an improvement. Hi, this is Ethan Tran, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. I want to shift gears away from uh, expensive cameras, and I want to talk about camera phones. So <laughs> you're on Team Pixel, Google Pixel. Explain, yes. explain, because some people might be like, well, what does that even mean? Like, what, what does that mean in reference to what you're doing as a photographer? What is, wh- go ahead and talk about what does it mean to be on Team Pixel and explain the whole process of the camera, uh, the, the phone camera photography world. Okay, so for most people, Team Pixel means that, you know, you represent Team Pixel in the sense of, you know, they give you free product and you you know, shoot and you tag and you do some other things and you're constantly uh, getting updates and um, doing team challenges and having prizes and things also behind the scenes. But my involvement at first with Pixel was they approached me. They had come out with a new astrophotography app, which my heart, I was so excited. I'm like, yes, they love me for my astrophotography and I can't wait to shoot it. And then we got on our business call. They said, no, and I'm like, yeah, so where do you want me to shoot? And they're like, no, ma'am, we don't want you to shoot astrophotography. We want you to manipulate the app to shoot light painting. And my heart sank because, you know, you, when you think something's one thing and it's another. So I was like, oh, man, I was so dashed. And they said, no, we want you. You know, we were on, on a call with engineers trying to reverse engineer, you know, so I could understand what my parameters were and what I had to work with. And uh, so I was kind of like boohooing, you know, they're like, no, we want you to do this and we want you to, you know, make it work, but create a light painting time lapse and whatever, all within the phone. So uh, I'm like, gosh, darn it. How am I going to do it? So um, they, so they hired me to do this campaign and we went out and we, we've shot probably so many different, cause I'm such a perfectionist. Um, we probably shot five different locations, um, different things, moonlight without moonlight. And we finally got it right. And um so what it turns out with a, with a Google Pixel phone is uh, you, you go into night sight mode and it'll take a four minute exposure of the night sky. It'll get your really, because it's doing some, you know, um, some blending, some other things all on its own. You, and it gives you two products. It gives you a still image and a one second time lapse. But that one second time lapse is comprised of 16 images. So I used a metronome to count seconds because I obviously I can't see the camera and I'm painting with my daughter. So every 16 seconds I would have her move towards the camera and we would do a circle. And then I would run out of the frame, come back in, do an, you know, have her move, do a circle every 16 seconds, which would produce, if you look on my Instagram, uh, I have a time lapse of her being light painted in a ballet costume, walking towards the camera. So that's what they had hired me initially to do to uh, manipulate the app to create a time-lapse. So uh, 
lately, I will just tell you about mobile phone photography. I've been working with Dr. Brown. He is a, a the, the only Photoshop, uh, original Photoshop designer left at Adobe, from what I believe. And he shoots nothing but mobile photography because I think his, his stick over there right now is the mobile editing and on the iPad and whatnot. So he shoots everything mobile. And even, even he agrees. We did the night photo summit together. And he was also impressed by the Google Pixel phone and the capabilities of the night shooting and how much light it brings in and, and how it handles the files. So even he thinks um, if you're going to do any night photography and you just want something that fits in your pocket, I mean, that Pixel is amazing. I love it. Now, on the subject of uh, camera phones, uh, where do you see our industry moving? Because I know that uh, when we spoke on Clubhouse, we ran across some iPhone photographers who did some pretty cool stuff. But where do you, where do you see, because uh, there have been rumors that uh, Apple is going to come out with a phone that's going to have Zeiss glass in it. But where do you, where do you see our industry going uh, in, when it comes to mobile photography? You know, I, I don't think it, it's going to overcome anything. I, I, I don't see a day where you can have the same control in a phone that you do uh, with an SLR. If it does, I, I see people are getting really upset that I'm using, you know, oh, you're, you're, you're light painting and you, you, it's not a real light painting. Absolutely. Somebody who doesn't know how to light paint can't create that on the phone, right? You still have to have the eye and the artistry and the talent behind the lens, just like you do with a regular camera. Just because you have uh, an easier format to do it doesn't take away anything from anyone. And I don't think mobile photography, at least right now, doesn't have the same manual capabilities of uh, what our R5 does, so to speak. So light painting with the phone, I'm restricted by what I know that camera can handle. So I can't use, you know, a thousand lumens or I can't use whatever I want or I can't leave it open for four hours. I can't leave it open for 2.5 seconds. It's I'm stuck to four minutes. So there are limitations. There are things that you can't do with one that the other. So just like AI, I don't think is going to take away our jobs per se because you still need an artist behind it. You still need a creative director who knows what they're doing. Um, I just see it as a great tool to have in your pocket. Um, like when I'm out with friends and I really, I'm not taking my gear with me and I happen to have my pixel in my pocket. It's great that I can capture the Milky Way or get a, a selfie of me and my friends with the Milky Way in the background. I think that's freaking amazing, but I don't think that's ever going to overcome whatever I can do. Discovery Channel is not going to license a video that I made with my Google Pixel versus one that I made with my R5, if that makes sense. It does. There are some things though that uh, I hope that camera manufacturers take note of that camera phones can do. So for one, and I hear this all the time, is when you get a beginner photographer who goes out and buys a DSLR or mirrorless, they always go, why can my camera phone take pictures of my wife yeah. sitting on the couch in our house better than I can with my camera? Well, first of all, it's because your other camera, you have to work a lot harder to get a better result because you have to know what you're doing. But they also yeah. don't realize that they're doing what are those uh, HDR images where your camera takes like 12 pictures and yeah. very quickly at different exposures and then, you know, composites them together to make this perfectly balanced, uh, you know, shot. Um, but yeah. another thing that I really hope that camera manufacturers will take note of, and I've talked about this ad nauseum and I'm going to keep going on it, which is um, 
If somebody stole your R5, wouldn't you love to know where it is? Yes. And uh, actually, have you ever used TinEye? No. So if, if I stole your camera and I took pictures and I posted them anywhere online, I know, I know my camera serial number from Photoshop and I can search that online. I think it's TinEye and you'll see the person if they're posting pictures anywhere on the internet, you can find that person um, and figure out possibly where your camera is. But but yeah, as far as having, you know, like a locator and things like that, I I'm, I'm think that's where you're going with that. But yeah. right now, uh, you know, um, spidering the uh, the uh, serial number only because I was with a friend in New York who he left it in a cab. And as instantly as the cab was driving away, he realized that it was in there. So you just grab that serial number and you keep searching, hoping you'll find somebody. Now, more often than not, the person bought it from somebody on Craigslist. I mean, what do you do after that? Um, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, well, it'd be nice. Like, cause I, I don't, I mean, I don't know how long you've been with Canon, but I used to shoot on a 6D and the 6D had GPS built into the hot shoe. And, yeah. you know, you could, now obviously if you take the battery out, it stops working, but you could also, you know, you could get one of those tiny little disc batteries and have a little compartment in the hot shoe that will kind of run its own independent battery. So that way if somebody steals your camera and they take the battery out, you can still know where the camera is. I thought that that would be, that's just, that's just my own personal quest that I want to get camera manufacturers to do because I told the story about how I lost my earbuds in Space Mountain at Disney World and Disney World found my earbuds because my AirPods have tracking in them. And it's a little $150 device. You're going out yeah. and you're, you're spending six Gs on an R3 or something like that. It's like, man, I kind of yeah. I kind of think y'all could include that. So. Well, let me tell you a trick I do, Kevin. Um, I have a strap uh, and, you know, the leather part that is a custom strap and the leather part that kind of protects your shoulder. I slice that open and I put a... Um, a uh, air tag in there and then I sew it back up. So every time I have to change the battery, but it's, it's, it's very hidden and I have foam on either side. So it doesn't really stick out. Like there could be something in there. It just looks like a, you know, a protective thing. Now, mind you, it may tell them after an hour or two that they're being followed by an air tag, but they're not going to know where or why. So I have one hidden in my camera bag um, in, in the lining. I've cut the lining and put it in there and I also put it in the camera straps. Um, and I actually also have one that has a tag on it, like a keychain. But I mean, that's a little more obvious. But if I'm in the desert and I'm trying, you know, desperately to find it, I've at least got a couple options. And if they take that off and dump it, at least I know I, I you know, I'm going on the right path. So um, there's a couple different ways that I handle that. And thank goodness I've never had to to deal with that. But uh I'm always about preventative. <laughs> yeah, thefts are going up. I, I I do the lining of the bag. As a matter of fact, all my bags have air tags in them because you know they're twenty bucks. I'll, I'll spend that twenty bucks. But I like your idea yeah. of putting it in the wrist strap. I think that that's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the last place they'll look. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Well, uh, last comment I'm gonna make about gear, which is if you ever do decide to switch over to those RF lenses. Oh my God, they look so amazing. Mm -hmm. Like you get that 15 to 35 and it is magnificent. Absolutely. Like Maybe that'll sharp. be the first one I buy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was looking at, yeah, you use a 16 to 35. The 15 to 35 is the, the next logical choice. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. 
Yeah, I kind of just had uh, one last question, and I, I usually do ask this, is that um, we have talked quite a bit about gear, and I'm going to extend this just a little bit, is it what would, what would make your life easier in both astrophotography and light photography? What would you look for in a camera in an upgrade, uh, either hardware or software, that would make your life easier? Uh, you know, more convenient with that regard? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, a way to trigger it consistently without having a line of sight, you know, a red light or something like that. If there was a way, something that would work consistently, I, I mean, I have a, a wireless trigger, but it, it, it does get a little quirky at times, even the best one on the market, but an easier way to trigger my camera remotely from you know, a significant distance would, would really be life-changing for me. Amazing. Yeah. How much time, how much time do you typically spend in post-production with your masterpieces? Uh, And I guess it would probably vary depending on the, like, if if you're doing something with motion, I'm assuming that takes a lot longer than just, uh, you know, your daughter's up there and you you have a tree behind her and you just do some light painting real quick. But uh, talk about that process. Yeah, my 100% of my energy in post-production with the night sky is taking out those freaking satellites and airplanes. So oh yeah, because you're doing video, yeah, because it's doing video frame by frame, guess what I have to do? I have to go into all 400 or more images one at a time and take them out. And so you need automation there. I, I, you know, I'm trying to get Dr. Brown to whisper in uh, Adobe's ear, y'all need to, you know, make that another AI thing is taking out the airplanes um, frame by frame. So because we're making a video file, so if I flattened my star trails, if I just blended them all to one flat image, it's going to look like a roadmap, right? (laughs) Planes everywhere. You could probably take those out on that flat image, but some of the star trails will be a little wavy. So even for that, I take them out one at a time, but I'm, you know, if I license that, you know, Getty or whoever, they're going to pixel peep. It has to be perfect. So maybe the average person doesn't take all of them out. And sometimes maybe I'll leave a real nice one in or a meteor or something in to give it a more real feel, but the majority of them need to come out and you have to, there's only one way to do that. And that is frame by frame. So I will spend an entire day, you know, opening 20 images at a time, you know, until my hand starts to hurt, then I'll take a break. I'll come back and whatever. So each star, you know, time lapse, star trail time lapse has, you know, probably a full day of editing, just taking out. That's before you even assemble, before you do anything. And, um, and that's just my, you know, attention to detail, attention to, um, wanting a clean product as possible. Um, that's just where I come from. So that is I'm sure inc- most people won't. Do that. Yeah. That is incredibly tedious. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine the amount yeah. of time that takes because uh, as, as a videographer, as well as photographer, I know, you know, how tedious those things can be. Um, but you touched on, you touched on licensing and that actually, um, that, that piqued my interest, uh, as a portrait photographer, licensing isn't something I often have to worry about uh, because a lot of it's contract-based and it's just between me and the client. However, um, for the audience, how is licensing a major benefit uh, to you and your work? So I've been licensing my images for 
20 years now. And it's fabulous because I sit at home and I live off royalties from video and stills that I've shot. I mean, how many years ago, which affords me the opportunity to work when I want and how I want and do workshops and teach night sky. Um, it, it just, it's having a revenue stream in all areas. So um, I have all sorts of different agencies that I'm with, but one that most people would know is Getty. So if I have work that I submit there, it just sits there and can be licensed over and over again. It can be licensed just once and it depends on what the client wants to pay for. And it's just a constant revenue stream that uh, I've kind of built up over the last 20 years. Uh, what's uh, obviously we don't want to discuss numbers, but what's the biggest client that's ever licensed your, your work? Oh, um, Target has licensed me. There was a time where they had a pet section and they had my pet images there. And when I was there and, you know, I was in my sweats and I looked like a homeless person shopping and I started taking pictures. I said, Oh my gosh. You know, when I, and the lady was like, uh huh. Yes. Have a nice day. Like I was crazy. It was great. But, um, so yeah, target has licensed my stuff, discovery channel, um, Top Chef, whatever production company for Top Chef, um, kind of licensed one of my time lapses for LA, um, just stuff like that. And I, and I, 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 you know, it's really hard to pay attention because I have so many licenses that are sold every year that gets impossible. It's just sometimes the bigger ones will stick out or I'll see it in production or something. And I'm like, oh, hey, there's my, my work or whatever. And that's kind of cool, but it's, it would be impossible to keep up with. So I just kind of wait to see it or find it. And um, yeah, so that's how. You have a whole nother Instagram account that's devoted toward like miniature, like. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> do you want to plug that real quick? Oh, sure. Um, I think it's called Miniature Photo Artist. <laughs> Let me go double check. I, I haven't. It's really funny. I only get the creative urge to shoot that around the Christmas break. So I make the majority of those around that time every year and um so i have their miniature let me look it up real quick miniature ah, i can't even spell miniature. i'm looking at it right now i'm seeing uh, oh, some, there it is yeah I'm seeing some painters put on some lipstick on a model yes so um actually i don't have much work on here um, it's, I, I do have it on my website, which is lightpaintedart.com. I have a whole section for my miniatures, but um, that image actually won a, con a toy photo contest. So these miniatures, if you look at the one with the lip <clears throat> painting on there, um, that is those, those are called HO scale. They're like train models. And um, I'm not the only one who does that, but I think I do them in my own unique way. And I, I, I find quirky things like uh, the one with the tooth, the broken tooth. I went to the dentist and I, she pulled it out and I said, Hey, wait a minute. Can I take that home? And she <laughs> thought I was crazy. And then I said, do you got any other things like broken bridges or anything that I could borrow from old patients? And um, so, yeah, she gave me a lot of stuff to take home and play with. And uh, it just, it's just another creative outlet for me that, um, or some, a friend has a broken phone, as you can see that. Um, you know, hey, they know to give it to Katrina and all the weird stuff. And uh, it's just a fun, creative outlet. And I, I built miniatures as a young child. I built dollhouses. I was really weird. Um, but yeah, I had constantly built Victorian dollhouses and made miniature things and learned how to make um, electrify a dollhouse by like the age of 10. 
and just miniatures always were a part of my life. And while I can't really do that now, I have too many hobbies, but this is kind of one way to satisfy that whole miniature compulsion um, to create that I have. So, and uh, like the one with the bee, uh, I found it dead in my studio and I kind of said, oh, wait a minute, how can I work this into a photo? So I, every time I find something weird or deceased or in perfect condition, I kind of save it for a future project. And so he's just an overworked honeybee, right? With all the honey in the background. And uh, he's on the stretcher uh, and just an overworked bee. So just little things that kind of come to my mind that uh, make me laugh. And I, I try to create that and, and give a giggle with that as well. I love the lawnmower one with the trimming the hedges on the mustache and the lawnmower right. and the beard. Very Isn't creative. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. I just, it's, it's, you know, it's always good to talk to creators. Clearly you're very prolific uh, and you have a very uh, creative imagination. So um, I think that's probably going to wrap it up for today because we're running out of time. But before we leave, what are you working on? What would you like to plug on the show? Tell us about it. Oh, well, I just created an ebook. Um, for light painting the night sky with the night sky, technical details, recipes, and things like that. So I do have an ebook on my website, which is lightpaintedart.com. And it's a redirect. It'll take you to my main website. And of course, it's, there should be a link also on my Instagram, which is Redhead Katrina. And we will, of course, put links to um, everything we've discussed, including the specific images, but we'll obviously give links to your, uh, your website, your Instagram, all your, um, your teaching materials and all that here as well. So that'll be in the description of this podcast. Uh, awesome. and yes. And so Katrina, thank you like seriously for, for joining us. We, we love talking about models and it's great. And we're going to have a model in here in our next episode to talk about photographers, but we like to talk about all kinds of photography and this has definitely been a treat and one of the coolest episodes we've done to date. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys. I appreciate that. Yeah, we appreciate your time. It's been lovely talking. Um, I know very little about light photography and astrophotography. So when, you know, whenever I get the chance to pick someone's brain, it's a, it's a true delight. If I can, if I can take like a, a, a one, one hundredth of what she talked about today and incorporate it into my work, I think it'll like take it to, another level. Oh, you know, before we do go, I do have one more question for you. If somebody's listening to this and they look at your work and they get like, oh my gosh, I want to do this, but I don't live out in California. Where do they even get started to start doing what you do? Oh gosh. So, um, I also represent light painting brushes. It's a, a brand of light painting tools. If you go to their, uh, I'm sure Google it on Facebook. There's a help group. I can't think of the name, but light painting brushes, there's all sorts of videos. You can actually go to lightpaintingbrushes.com. There's all sorts of videos on how to get started and with their tools, or uh, even there's some that show you even how to use plastic to like your, um, you know, soda water bottles or things like that. Um, just, you can see what other people are doing. You can physically see videos. You can uh, learn from people are sharing. And I'm sure there's a link to their Facebook learning page as well through their website. So that's the first place to start. Um, YouTube, there's also Eric Pere. He does tons of tutorial videos. Um, I have some on my, my YouTube, but nowhere close to what Eric has. Um, and I believe you just search Eric Pare, P-A-R-E in YouTube. You'll get all of his tutorial videos as well. 
and I'm sure tons of other things will show up and that should get you rear and to go. And if you do like any of those tools, if you go to my website under my uh, light painting, because I represent uh, light painting brushes as well, and I also represent light painting tubes, I believe the link for light painting tubes will give you free shipping or 10% off and then light painting brushes. You can also, there's all, always different sales, um, but those links are on my website. So if you go through those links, you'll get those discount codes. Um, but those are great places to start to look at, to, to see tutorials and to get started on just the light painting part. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. I know you have a workshop or something you have to go to later today. So we're gonna let you uh, move on with your day. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, everybody, Katrina Brown. Thanks, guys. It was a great time. Bye. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, Katrina Brown. That does it for today's episode. We want to extend a special thanks to Katrina Brown for teaching us something new about photography that neither of us really had any clue about. We just knew it looked really pretty. But now we got some insight, and uh, maybe we'll try uh, adopting these methods and incorporating them into what we do. Mm. Yeah, I need a little bit more lights in my life. Yes, we can always have more lights in our life. Check us out at f11pod.com. And our extension, of course, our handles is f11 on Instagram and Twitter. And until next time, kids, chase light and not algorithms. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.